Welcome to Regulated and Relational, the bi-monthly podcast produced by the Attachment Trauma Network. Today in the studio, we have Rebecca Lewis-Pankratz, co-founder of SDAC's Resilience Team. Rebecca is a force for building and sustaining poverty resolution projects across the Midwest, and we'll be talking to Ginger and Julie about the River of Cruelty model from the Family Peace Initiative. You don't want to miss this. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Ginger Healy. And I'm Julie Beam. And we're excited to share with you from both our personal experiences and our professional knowledge, what it truly means to be attachment focused, trauma informed, and how we can help children impacted by early childhood trauma. And today we are so excited to bring to you a very special guest, a very dear friend to us, Rebecca Lewis Pankratz. Welcome, Rebecca. Oh my goodness, ladies. I am so excited to be here. I know. I actually can't believe we haven't done this before because we're with each other all the time. We love each other so much. So yay, finally we are doing this. Julie, why don't you introduce Rebecca to everybody? With pleasure. Rebecca is a remarkable human being. And I think you guys are going to know that in the next 30 minutes or so. Her day job is to work with both communities and schools across the U.S. to truly solve poverty and heal trauma. She does this by helping brilliant and caring leaders create sustainable ecosystems of resilience through building better relationships. Rebecca herself fought her way out of poverty and the trailer park in 2011 with three young sons. A local poverty resolution project found Rebecca and activated her journey. She later went to work for that nonprofit, and then went on to build multiple projects like it to help more families. In 2015, she started working with the public education system and ignited a trauma-informed schools movement in her state and beyond. Rebecca experienced a lifetime of trauma and poverty, and through access to buffering relationships, she's healed from both, and she continues to light the path for others along that healing journey. She is a co-founder for the SDAC Resilient Team, and Rebecca and her team have walked alongside well over 100 K through 12 schools, equipping their staff as their journey continues towards becoming more trauma-informed. The Resilience Team's core value is that in order to create more positive outcomes for children, we must focus on transforming the adults who are important to these children's lives. She is an incredible facilitator, a generous storyteller, has an uncanny way of helping people boil down topics and absorb deep concepts around the brain, around behavior, around healing, around their own need for self-compassion. I can hardly wait to dive in here with Rebecca. Here's what I'd like to do, Rebecca. You have spoken a lot about this topic and concept called the river of cruelty. And so I think for our listeners, let's break it down. Give us a 101, tell us exactly what it is, what it means. And then of course, we are going to hopefully learn by the end how to heal and get ourselves out of that river of cruelty. Ginger and Julie, it is, you know, a big honor to kind of share this way to look at human behavior and to also get into our own stories Mm -hmm. and kind of dig around in there and realize that that's where the freedom is. 
uh, I want to say one thing, like, Julie, as you read that bio, I'm just sitting here like, yeah, and my car is filthy. And there's, you know, issues with interpersonal relationships. And so I want people to know that I hold the journey that I'm on with this profound respect. And I got here because of people like you. And we all have the power to be that to somebody. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I still am amazed that this is where my life ended up. And I'm almost 50. And I'll be really honest, the first 30 years of my life, I never thought I would live this long. And so Mm -hmm. I'm kind of like celebrating every day that I'm almost turning 50. Like, I'm so excited to turn 50 next year. And so to kind of lay some foundation and give some real deep respect to the organization that really formulated the river of cruelty. I'll just kind of take you guys on a quick story. Sissy White from Pace's Connection. Like she is one of the most amazing people, but she connected me to a gentleman out of Colorado, James Encinas. And she's like, I really think you guys need to talk. There's this training coming up. And of course I met James on the phone and we talked for like an hour and a half and you just find another soulmate on this road. Right. And like, Oh my gosh. And he's like, I really want you to be a part of this training. I'm pulling together educators from across the country to kind of look at this basically river cruelty model. And he said, and it's in Topeka, Kansas. And I'm like, what? Like that's two hours from where I live. Like, absolutely. We'll be there. Went into that training fully expecting I don't know what I expected, but what I found was mind blowing. Mm -hmm. And I met this organization called the Family Peace Initiative. And the Family Peace Initiative has been in the domestic violence realm for about 30 years. But about 16 years ago, there was just a moment where they kind of realized that we could keep doing domestic violence work for the rest of our lives and never really make a dent in what's happening to people. We got to get upstream and work with the men who are battering. And so their batterers intervention work was born. We were sitting there with them going through this model, the family peace initiative model, and just having my whole entire world turned upside down. One of the reasons we were there is because violence is an issue in schools. It doesn't matter if you're in a tiny town in the United States or in, you know, a metro area, the prevalence of violence, especially in our grade schools is just growing. It feels overwhelming and people don't really know how to wrap their heads around it. And you guys know with, you know, the work that attachment and trauma network does is that we're trying to help figure out how to not re-traumatize children who are bringing this stuff into our schools. And so when I got a hold of the river of cruelty model, I was like, holy smokes, because I've known for a long time, as you guys have as well, that oftentimes we're talking about behavior, but when we're talking about behavior, we're already late. There's so much going on before that. Right. And so we went back to Topeka to Stephen Dorothy and said, we need to take this work into schools. You know, the family peace initiative out of Topeka, Kansas, they have a ton of resources. And I want to point people right back there to them. We also got their blessing and did deep training so that we can take this work to educators. And we've also been doing it with families, with parents, parents who are experiencing poverty and have high trauma. And so the river of cruelty model is really, you know, just thinking about the cycle of violence. Mm -hmm. How is cruelty passed? And understanding that cruelty isn't just this thing that kind of comes out of nowhere, One of the key concepts of the river of cruelty is that everybody who uses cruelty in their lives has been treated cruelly first. 
And so as we kind of dig into this for listeners, I want to just know that this conversation can bring up some big stuff for people. And so it's kind of a trigger warning as we just kind of fly over some pieces. And I'd also like to just say that Alice Miller is one of the researchers and psychotherapists that a lot of this work came from. And so books that she has written, The Drama of the Gifted Child, For Your Own Good, Thou Shalt Not Be Aware. And I've just been kind of digging back into For Your Own Good. And part of what drove Alice Miller was trying to figure out, you know, Hitler's story. Her parents mm-hmm. were Holocaust survivors, but it was Hitler's story. But she was also really fascinated with how a whole entire like country and society could kind of follow suit with what was happening. Right. And so the book, Thou Shalt Not Be Aware and For Your Own Good really kind of digs into that. And so I want us to understand that what she really came up with was this sense of emotional blindness and, you know, bargaining with our kids in multiple means of how to not feel their feelings and how to just get in line. Right. Mm -hmm. And most of the time as parents, when we're thinking about trying to help our kids just get in line, it really is an attempt to keep our kids safe. It's not about hurting our kids. It's not about trying to make them compliant and obedient human beings. Oftentimes it isn't even about power and control for most parents. It's about, we're trying to help our kids learn to be safe. That happens exponentially in families who have some sort of oppression or risk factor like poverty or people of color, the need to keep your children safe is much greater in those situations. Yes. And so it is really a survival-based type of abuse. I'm just going to, you know, sit here today with listeners and say, I have definitely been a part of this river cruelty. And so, you know, the river cruelty, the other thing that I'll say is there's a way out of the river. So there's good news. And that comes through learning how to sit with our own adverse feelings and sit with the adverse feelings of others. And it is also through attachment and safe, supportive, available relationships, right? Which is really the science of resilience. Right. And so I want listeners today to know that. And the other thing about the river of cruelty is it's a great way to map behavior and to kind of understand that. People are using defense systems mm-hmm. to not feel their adverse feelings and that defense mm-hmm. systems are often part of how people survive. But the other thing that's really important about the river of cruelty is if we're looking at this work and we're seeing other people, we're kind of missing the boat because the river of cruelty is about understanding what drives my own defense systems and having the courage and the faith mm-hmm. to dig into my own story and experience some of the harder things about who I am and realize that, you know, I have great light inside of me and I also have great darkness and that is the human condition, right? And once I have kind of dug around in there, I pursue adverse feelings instead of trying to run from them Mm -hmm. or pass them off, right? Mm -hmm. Then I've begun the journey of deep introspection, and that is also a way out of the river of cruelty, right? When we can start to realize that we can let go of our need to psychologically defend and protect. So if you think about the map of the river of cruelty, right, just think about a map and on the map, right, there's going to be different categories, And the first category is just, you know, cruel things that happen to to kids, 
And that's kind of the entrance into the river. One thing about the ACE study that I think you guys have found too, is that there was so much power in the validation of that science. And one of the kind of unintended consequences is there's so many people out there who looked at that ACE study and said, well, I don't have any of those, so I don't have trauma. And so we always want to think about, you know, the entrance into the river of cruelty is big T trauma and little T trauma, right? It could Mm -hmm. be these big things, witnessing domestic violence. It could be, you know, physical abuse, but it can also be living in a household with high perfection. It can also be having parents that work two and three jobs and are never home, right? Because little kids experience these things and whether they're openly intended, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's stuff that happens to us that impacts us. The loss of a beloved pet, the loss of a parent, those types of things, right? So whatever a person puts in that first category for their cruelty Mm. belongs there, Mm. right? And so it isn't about, you know, qualifying anything. And so when you think about, you know, kind of your entrance into the river of cruelty, then you think about as a little person, what were some of the big feelings that you had when that thing happened? And so then the next part of the map is adverse feelings. And the adverse feelings are the feelings nobody wants to wake up in the morning and feel, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about different types of adverse feelings that show up on this map that we're creating together, this river map, it really is shame, guilt, rage, fear, confusion, terror, sadness, despondence, right? All the things. Stupid always shows up on there. And I always ask people, is stupid a feeling? I believe it is because we often say, I feel so stupid, right? We can identify with that, right? right? We know exactly when someone says that we're like, oh, yep, I know that feeling. Alone would be another one, I think, Rebecca, because you're talking about this and I'm thinking about my own map and I'm like, okay, my big feeling was isolation, alone, misunderstood kind of things, right? It's so all those feelings that as young people, most of us, not all, but most of us were raised in households and schools where people worked pretty hard to help us not feel those feelings. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we actually experienced more cruelty if we did outwardly show those feelings. And so an example of that, right, is I'll give you something to cry about. You know, I love someone that when I was younger, had some pretty significant mental health challenges. And if I would cry when there was an event happening, it would create more anger incensed, right? And so as a little kid, right, I'm trying to figure out how to manage those adverse feelings. It's really important to know that, you know, those big emotional loads that are happening inside of our bodies, like as little people, we're trying to figure out what to do with that. And so, Adverse feelings that aren't explored safely and taught, you know, how to have them and they're not welcome and opened in a little human being, they have to be managed. And so what people do is they start to build defense systems. So that's the next category in the river map. You've got cruelty, you've got adverse feelings, and then you have defense systems. And one of the interesting thing about you know, kind of these adverse feelings and these big emotional loads is that to manage those things, people typically do one of two things. They heap more cruelty on themselves or they begin to pass cruelty to others. And so, you know, we call those defense systems and, you know, I always kind of talk to people like 
I'm not really a big football fan, but I'm like, when a quarterback gets a ball, what does he need to do? And people are like, get rid of it. I'm like, yeah, hot potatoes. So when you think about having these big emotional loads, one of the fastest ways to deal with it is to give it to somebody else. When we talk about schools, right, and we have these kids in first, second, third grade that are flipping desks, I explained this is a perfect illustration because a kid gets a math paper handed out to him. And all of a sudden they have this fear, right? That they're going to know I'm stupid, whatever it is. And so this big, intense feeling happens for kid and mm-hmm. they're scared. And then they flip a desk. Now who's scared? Everybody right. else, right? So when you think about defense systems, it's, you know, flipping desks, running out of classrooms, hitting other kids, bullying not engaging perfectionism. It's interesting. Perfectionism can show up on the cruelty, but then it can also begin to be a defense system. So some kids are like doing all the things or pulling all nighters in sixth grade, right? To get all the homework done. They're signed up to every club. Oh, and then I always kind of bring people into grown up defense systems. Like, what are we doing currently? You, then you get into drinking and eating or not eating and shopping and infidelity. Right. I mean, all these things that we do to not feel our feelings because we never were taught how to feel them. And, you know, I always want to stop here and just kind of help people understand that defense systems aren't to be judged. And this is the part that we're focused. We're hyper-focused on defense systems in schools and in societies, right? <laughs> this is what we're talking about behavior. There's something happening before that, right? It's adverse feelings and kids not knowing or being taught how to deal with them. So defense systems aren't to be judged. They're part of how people survive the river of cruelty. And the interesting thing about defense systems though, in human beings is we often tend to hang on to our defense systems long after we're out of the river. Like for me, when I was, gosh, I was like 15 years old. The first time I smoked pot. And I just remember on that day thinking, I never want to not feel this way again. Like all of a sudden, all the anxiety, all the emotional loads that I hadn't really figured out how to deal with successfully. I'd had an eating disorder before that. But on that day, I found a solution. So when you think about cruelty, adverse feelings, defense systems, the next kind of category in the map is consequences. Because hanging on to those defense systems, they often come at a cost, right? And so I would say by, you know, 20 years old, I was heavily addicted to drugs. I was in an abusive relationship, repeating the cycle of poverty and also really caught up in a criminal element because my husband, soon to be husband, was a drug dealer, right? And so I was deep into the environment that I swore as a kid I would get out of. Mm -hmm. So already repeating the cycle, right? And so when you guys think about other types of consequences that come from defense systems, big defense systems or little defense systems, what are some of those other types of consequences that we see? I mean, obviously it could be jail. It could be something, you know, criminal, but it could be loss, you know, it could be divorce or, you know, relationships, burning those bridges, or missing the opportunities for them. Like if you're thinking even about something that looks like a more benign workaholic or perfectionism, you know, you're missing yes. out. You're missing the relationships. You're missing the fun, yes. the joy, the playfulness, all of those things. It is and the it, loss. It's the loss of 
I guess the good things in life, the positive, the not adverse feelings, the positive healing feelings, if you will. The hopes and the dreams, you know, the potential. You know, I think about the different defense systems, you know, the masks that people need to Mm -hmm. kind of really work hard to construct the different, you know, political stuff can be defense systems for people. Mm -hmm. So they feel really scared and powerless by what's happening in the world. And so we kind of dig into being on one party or another. And then part of that, right, we end up passing cruelty because then we're like, you know, enraged with another group of people and we're on social media saying all the things, right? And the consequence of that is that certain people who love us are like, I can't deal with that anymore. I don't even want to go to Thanksgiving dinner with you. Right. And so you're right. It's the loss of these relationships and connection and, you know, having authentic, hard conversations about, I'm really terrified about where things are. So all those things, I mean, well, and it's heavy too, right? It's like this weight on you, even if you're not acknowledging it, you know, when you said the mask, I'm thinking to build that mask, to build that, whatever those walls are around you is so exhausting. And there's a lot of maintenance. There's a lot of maintenance and there's a lot of fear of what happens if somebody, you know, knows mm-hmm. what happens if somebody really sees. And it's one of the reasons I told you guys, I've got two dirty toilets. I'm working really hard to, you know, get beyond the cover story, right? Mm-hmm. Cause that's also part of our way out of the river. The consequences come and they're usually painful. There's a lot of loss and we don't really ever talk about this last part of the river in society. And I think we're starting to kind of dig around there. But the last part of the river, if you think about the map, cruelty, adverse feelings, defense systems, consequences, the last part of the river is beliefs and attitudes. And our beliefs and attitudes, you know, they start getting shaped and formed at a really young age. And we have really good beliefs and attitudes that are given to us from like enlightened witnesses and the people that, you know, show up in our lives and they pour the hope and the worth and all the things into us. They also get shaped by our time in the river of cruelty and beliefs and attitudes can kind of come in two forms. One are personal beliefs and attitudes about who I am. Others are more externally focused on who you are or who this group is, right? And so we have personal and we have societal. And we do this around gender and race and class. You know, those are some real easy, sticky ones for societal beliefs, right? Right. And our time in the river of cruelty gives us these beliefs and attitudes. And the thing is, is that the beliefs and attitudes are kind of like the glue that holds everything together. And so when you think about like, a computer that's running, like beliefs and attitudes out of the river of cruelty would be the faulty computer code that's way down inside the code. But we never really get in there and dig around and look around and be like, is that really good code? It's kind of the motor that drives the car is another analogy. And, you know, we're usually in the car and we're going, but rarely do we ever pop the hood and go, what's going on under there, right? And so really looking and examining our beliefs and attitudes and understanding the impact that they have to perpetuate their cycle of the river is a big deal. Common beliefs and attitudes that come out of the river, I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. It doesn't matter anyways. Why try? I'll never get there. I have to be tough. I'm not smart. And, you know, I always kind of tell this story about my own life and, you know, the experience when I was going through the river of cruelty, like I just got hit so hard with 
holy smokes, right? Like my own participation in this, because as parents, we automatically start thinking about our kids. You see your own family's story and maybe the people who threw you in the river and you're like, okay, wow, where, where were they thrown in out? Right. Cause you know, it's generation to generation and we're starting to really look like way before us. And we're starting to look at where we are currently. And, you know, I remember I had little kids. My oldest was seven and we were in the trailer park and he actually got in trouble for hitting the 13 year old in the face with the rake. Police came and they took my seven-year-old you know, to jail and I had to go get him out. And I just remember sitting in my trailer that night and I was in the poverty project at that time already. And I was really wrestling with this idea of getting out of poverty because I'm generationally poor and those are my people. And we have weird wiring beliefs and attitudes around money and people with money. And faith-wise, it almost felt wrong to me to want money and all the things, right? So I was already having this internal struggle, but I go and I get my little seven-year-old from the police department and we go through all the things with child services, you know, and I come home and I put him to bed and I'm sitting on my couch that night and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, from the time they got here, I've known something about my culture. And one is the boys go to jail young and the girls typically get pregnant young. And so from the time they got here, you guys, there was this deep belief and attitude inside of me that said, I have to make my boys what? What do you guys think that was? Tough. Right? I have to make my boys tough. Mm -hmm. And like, and when I went through this river of cruelty process and I really looked at that, I'm like, oh my gosh. And that is exactly the belief and attitude that gave me permission to throw my own kids in the river. Like I got to toughen these boys up. And so back Mm -hmm. to that night, right? Where I'm sitting there on that couch after my seven-year-old went to bed. I just remember, like, I didn't know about the river of cruelty. I didn't know about any of that stuff. But I remember sitting there and praying and saying, I don't know if it's okay if I get out of poverty, but I know I have to get my boys out of here. So that they don't have to be tough and head them with their way to jail. That's right. And that night I made a decision to sacrifice time with my kids. And I started working three and four jobs while I was in college. Right. Mm. So like, that was what it kind of took to get us out of that environment. But when I go through this map and I think about, you know, families, like you said, Julie, who are in some really toxic stress places, what we don't understand some of the things that we're seeing. And, you know, like it is not uncommon in the culture that I come from for kids to come home with a black eye or something from another kid in the neighborhood or the school. Right. And moms say, what, don't you come home and tell me about a kid hurting you unless you have done something to that kid. And for us to understand that, you know, that mom, she doesn't understand in, in her mind, the belief and attitude is the only way for me to keep my kids safe is to teach them to fight and to use violence. Right. To be the tougher. So the river of cruelty, you know, really wrestling. And then I just want to say that I'm still wrestling with the different defense systems that I'm using currently and the little tiny ways that I still struggle to sit with these feelings of not being enough, of not belonging, of being on the outside and the defense systems that I use to try and not have that be the story. Mm -hmm. And so currently ladies in my life, I am really working on how do I accept that those feelings are normal? I'm glad you said that. And I want you to know that as you talked through this river of cruelty process, I was going there too. And I don't have 
the background of adversity that you have in my history. And yet they are normal because they're right there. They came right to the surface. I immediately started processing through all of that as well and thinking they are defenses and I would love to break them down, but oh, what the work is. I had the experience about a year and a half ago to go through this peaceful family framework. And I have never had such a more powerful life-changing experience. It took a level of vulnerability that I wasn't willing to until that moment. I went into it because I know you, Rebecca, and I trust you. And I, I knew that I would be safe. Because I knew that it was going to, if I let it shape Mm -hmm. me and change me and move me and shake me. And I'm so grateful for that experience, but yeah, I'm still on the journey and I think I always will be. And so I also still appreciate hearing that it's normal and that these messages that we carry with us are so deeply ingrained, you know, and require constant work and attention. That we're all dealing with these shadow messages, right? right. These Mm -hmm. beliefs and attitudes, we're all dealing with that. And I had this like little hope kind of piece in just the way that the world works. And I'm always like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of people who figured this out and like, how to kind of accept life on life's terms and who we are and one another. And the sad part about American culture is that they're all in nursing homes and they have all the wisdom in the world and none of us want to hear it. You know, I miss my dad and I miss my grandpa. And I just remember like, oh yeah, they had kind of wrestled with the river of cruelty and, you know, found their way out on the other side. And the biggest message here is to increase love Mm -hmm. of self and others. Don't be afraid of the junk in the closet because the junk in the closet, if we don't go and touch some of that stuff, it holds great power over our behavior. And to teach our kids that whatever feelings they're experiencing are extremely valuable. Not only are they normal, but they're valuable because our emotions are our teachers. This is something we have to work really hard to promote in our culture because American culture, we are the most disembodied culture on the planet. We do not want to deal with the heart. We only want to deal with the prefrontal cortex. I mean, if you're really honest about it, like we have to be really cautious in this work because I think sometimes the message that we're sending to schools is that, you know, we should always try and have kids be regulated. You know, I believe deeply in co-regulation and I believe we're figuring out more and more behavior hacks, but kids aren't always going to be regulated. Mm -hmm. And if your kid in your classroom isn't regulated, it doesn't mean you're a bad teacher handle the dysregulation, the defense systems, right? And what we do afterwards to stay in community and belonging is part of getting out of the river of cruelty. I know that, but I needed to hear you say that, that like, it's okay. It's, you know, we're going to have these bumps in the road. We're not always going to be regulated. It's what we do. It's that we lean in and pause in those moments and figure it out, not deny it, not brush it over, not gloss everything and just move on. But like, okay, what's happening here, you know, and to model that for kids to teach that, that Johnny's having a tough time here, guys. So let's stop for a minute. 
Well, not just Johnny. I don't think I've ever lived an entire day of my life that I didn't dysregulate. Now, I might be able to re-regulate myself without anybody else noticing, but the dysregulated feeling was there, right? You know, something happened that threw me off balance. You know, Julie, one of my biggest shadow messages is I'm not safe. And so like, Mm -hmm. if I perceive that somebody that I care about is having a safety issue with me, it'll fins me out, you know, and like, mm-hmm. oh, they probably really feel not safe, right? Like safety is a huge part of my story. And so I have to really sit with that and wrestle with that and be like, oh my gosh, Rebecca, the thing that you want the most is for people to feel safe in your presence. And when you think that's being violated or they're not feeling that somehow you increase the level of unsafety. That is honest to God truth. Yeah. I'm instead of letting that. them own their own unsafe feeling, like you can't make everybody feel safe in your presence. And that's my current, you know, journey in the river is really identifying and learning that it's okay. Like you said, Julie, if somebody doesn't feel safe in my presence. Well, it's okay because you can't control their feelings. A feeling is a feeling, right? They have a right to that. You can't change your feelings. You can only address your feelings, right? That's really it. So it's hard because you're right. We don't spend any time learning about our emotions and our feelings and the importance of them and how to understand them. I mean, that's something that we as a society are not spending the energy on. I think we are more now than ever. We're having conversations, right? And schools are starting to understand that it's really hard to build empathy in a population of people if they're not sure what their own feelings are. So when you think about SEL, and I'm not a real big fan of the social emotional learning movement, because there's a lot of things that feel really problematic for me in the trauma-informed space. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that is in there that I think is really powerful is just this conversation around feelings. And as long as it's a conversation that's really curious around feelings with kids, that's great. But sometimes in SEL, the conversation can get to how to not have those feelings. So I'm like, oh, we're kind of sending mixed messages here to kids, but I mean, to do more work around normalizing feelings as our guides and how to have all the feelings safely without Mm -hmm. harming others and also without feeling bad for having them. And how to get on the other side, you know, those buffer relationships, what are our resources and our tools and our people that bring us back and make those feelings tolerable, manageable, And lead us to what is that feeling telling us and how do we get there? You know, how to resolve and move forward afterwards, but not the jump to it. Yeah. The wrap up thought that I am having is, oh my goodness, Rebecca, we all have so much more work to do. (laughs) It's like the things that are happening, especially things like the river of cruelty and the things that you do with your poverty simulation that we're going to get to witness at our conference as well are so important and critical for educators in this trauma-informed space to understand and really dig into. But we got a lifetime worth of work left. (laughs) And I think it's important. I think it's happening, which is the hope and the excitement, right? Is that folks are realizing the importance of really understanding what resilience is and how to build it and create it and nurture it. And it's, you know, 
I can't think of better work to be doing at this point, you know, in the world and in our society. So thank you. Thanks for walking us through this river model. It's super powerful. We'll make sure that our listeners have access to the Family Peace Initiatives information as well as yours and Mm -hmm. SDAC's information. And we want to say to those of you who are thinking about the conference, if you haven't gotten your ticket yet, Rebecca will be there. And so will many of her colleagues from SDAC. Say that we've got the whole S stack resilience. We are like a bunch of kids, like again, just the humility for the journey I'm on. I'm like, I actually get to go and be like an integral part of this conference with you guys. Like, like you said, Julie, there's so much work to be done. And, you know, getting to a conference like this is life-changing. I remember this is where mm-hmm. my paradigm started shifting. And so I can't wait to meet folks that are listening here today and go grab your friends because this stuff is always done better in teams. It is. Oh, we're excited. Every year it is our honor to meet folks who are doing this work and in so many different steps of the journey and the energy. It sustains us for all year long. I mean, we do a lot of virtual working, you know, so seeing each other in person is just, yeah. There's nothing better. So there'll be information about how to register for the conference if you need that in the show notes of this podcast too. Highly, highly recommend that you come and walk through the poverty simulation and all the other things that Rebecca and her SDEC team are offering at the conference because you will be blessed in all of that. Goodness, ladies. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational, and we thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you next time. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. Dr. Janine McConaughey joins Ginger and Julie next time for a discussion of trauma in the pews and trauma-informed therapies for the faith community. A special thanks to Lorraine Schneider, our editor, and Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment Trauma Network, visit our website at attachedtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website and through anchor.fm. I'm Danny Pancrat. Thanks for listening.